Hello, I'm Harry. Hello, I'm Rory, and welcome to Games on Film. Ah, 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 ah. Like that impression a lot. That was uh, the Count. Can you imagine if um, the Count from uh, Sesame Street's uh, wife had been burnt at the stake, and, and the the fear he wrought upon Sesame Street, <laughs> and only Big Bird can save um, the Kingdom of New York? I never really thought about how Sesame Street, maybe the villagers or the townsfolk of Sesame Street, mm. are in fear of the count i'm not sure where his castle resides does, does he ever go to sesame street i can't remember i only imagine him in his castle counting things maybe there's a, some sort of portal in Austria the grouch's trash can it does seem to go anywhere gosh all right we're not here to talk about i don't know 30 days of night meet sesame street <laughs> oh, that's quite the image there but it's castlevania we're here to talk about today the adaptation of the konami game series which has been brought to netflix via writer Warren Ellis and, uh, is it producer, uh, Adi Shankar's quote-unquote bootleg universe. The first season came out last year, it was only four episodes, and about a month or so ago, a series two landed with about eight episodes, and I believe shortly thereafter, series three has been announced. So we, we may or may not return to Council... Councilvania. Council Estatevania. Council Estatevania. Uh, we may return to Castlevania in uh, due course, but we thought it was a good time to um, strike while the iron's hot, as it were, and review see, probably the first arc of the yes. Castlevania animated series. Well, I guess you could say that season one is very much a sort of setup. Mm. I'd say it very much is establishes the world, the characters, and you know it's really series two, which is um, where all that pays off. Mm. And it'll be interesting to see where series three takes it uh, from there. But I think this is our first attempt to do a TV show. While there has been precedent before, they're usually in the realm of Saturday morning cartoon animations, which I mean, I don't know if I saw every episode of the Super Mario Brothers Super Show. Um, the but Pac-Man I, show as Yeah, well. multiple Sonic... Donkey Kongs, more Sonic. Sonic iterations, which I don't imagine has this kind of significant arc or through line, more just random adventures and episodes featuring beloved video game characters with music and sound effects from the games yeah i mean there's definitely a bit of fun to see the plinking plink mario sound effects appear in a cartoon but i think these these shows back then were to fill a a slot fill 20 minutes of saturday morning and probably the most successful is as we've mentioned pokemon i mean Mm. that obviously spun off into multiple movies as we mentioned in our last episode where we covered the Pokemon the Movie 2000. But in terms of maybe slightly, I say slightly, more grown-up <laughs> offerings, 
I guess the one that we've watched the most of was Mortal Kombat Conquest. Oh, my beloved Mortal Kombat Conquest. <laughs> and I think we, we will... We'll, I think we'll dedicate an episode in future mm. to that show because it has a very soft spot in our hearts. Yeah. But there, there have been other adaptations, but everyone talks about this age being the golden age of television. Mm. And obviously with the, um, the boom in streaming platforms. But I wonder whether going forward, people using the benefit that TV has in terms of telling a long-term narrative, whether we'll see more people thinking, well, it's hard to adapt this video game into a single movie, so maybe we'll go the TV series route. So we've had recently announced Halo Mm -hmm. uh, TV series. While it's on the sort of borderline, we'll have to wait and see because it's based on the books, but Netflix announced The Witcher TV series. And then just recently announced on the back of after series three of Castlevania was confirmed, um, there was an announcement from Adi Shankar of a Devil May Cry TV series too. Yeah, everyone's getting really... When he, he teased um, that he's got a massive announcement and it turned out to be Devil May Cry, which of course would be a fantastic if you're into Devil May Cry, but the internet was alight with all sorts of theories about how he might be making a Metroid... Uh, animated series or a Zelda animated series. I mean, maybe this is a good time to talk about um, Adi Shankar himself. He, I've got feelings about him. Um, I got to say, I really admire his gumption. Um, he will get. He does stuff, and he doesn't on his terms. And while people may not want to see a dark and gritty Power Rangers or a dark and gritty Powerpuff Girls, and and that goes to his his own work seemed to go to a, quite a surface level. I'm thinking like 300, like or Zack Snyder type deal, where it's, it is about the style. If he says he's going to get something made, he gets it made, and I, I can't but respect that. And he he does try to go for what he perceives to be the. He lets the franchise be true to itself. I saw him do an animated gritty James Bond animation um, with uh, Sean Connery. Someone doing a Sean Connery impression, <laughs> but it was more akin to the the Bond books than I'd ever seen Sean Connery ever do. So, if you've seen him, he's always wearing eye makeup and stuff. So he's a kind of an eccentric. But God knows the world could use more eccentrics, perhaps rather I than samey samey people. Yeah, because I think if you. You have production companies and you have producers that they are a brand. Mm. Um, If you think about Jerry Bruckheimer, he's very much every movie that he produces has a Jerry Bruckheimer stamp to it, which, you know, usually when you think of the auteur filmmaker, you think of the director. But it's interesting to have kind of producers who are themselves characters and, you know, in a way, perhaps what you're getting into if you watch an Adi Shankar project. And he, he, teamed, he was teamed up with some very interesting collaborators. I, I, I think he produced uh, The Grey, was it? The okay. Liam Neeson, Joe Carnahan oh, yeah. movie, that which I it. really quite liked. It had the courage of its own convictions, mm. I think. It didn't shy away from being quite brutal. And didn't he also produce Dread? Yeah, well? yeah, I read about that too. So, um, yeah, that's another sort of cult favourite, which, where it doesn't really recreate the look of the comics. I think it's still got a lot of fans 
who appreciated his respect for the character. I mean, in a nutshell, Judge Dredd never takes his helmet helmet off in the comics, and Judge Dredd never took his helmet off in the film, and mm. that's just because he's meant to present the the uh, faceless rule of law. But also, I guess this is, this is what I'm getting at. In the wrapped up in Judge Dredd, he's basically a fascist, and he get, often gets misinterpreted as a, a stri- an out-and-out hero. And I think the film, to some degree, runs that, you know, does that too. They, they view him as a badass hero. And maybe if there's a sequel, they would have gone into that a little, that, that shade of grey a little bit more. I guess in terms of the adaptations, there have been attempts to um, create Castlevania in some sort of uh, film context before. Mm. But I mean, this was originally planned as an animated movie, a uh, straight-up adaptation of uh, Castlevania III. We'll talk a little bit about the game shortly. But I think having seen season two, you can certainly see how a TV series version of it allows the story, allows the characters to breathe and add more depth, whereas a feature film wouldn't have been able to um, achieve that quite in the same way, perhaps? Yeah, the episodes are about half an hour long. So if you do binge watch them, I think season two is something like, how many hours? Like three, maybe? But yes, that automatically makes it one of the longest ever video game movies. So you can add... I mean, that's the, the big problem with adapting a video game is they tend you tend to play them for hours and hours and hours. But quite often there's very little story to get in the way of the gameplay. And so it's this constant push-pull between do you adapt a very story-heavy game, but then why bother because the story was told very well in the game? Or you take a game with very little uh, story and then you build loads till it's almost unrecognisable. And while Castlevania... It's like 30 plus games at this point, and there's mm. loads of mythos and lore and um, some reboots in there as well. The earlier games, of course, just hinted at a lot of things, and we this this TV series is based on one of the earliest iterations of the franchise. Um, uh, originally, before, I think, Adi Shankar, and I think before uh, Warren Ellis, who mm-hmm. will talk about as well looked at the adaptation friend of the show paul ws anderson was circling the castlevania project and they were trying to get something made even as recently as i don't know sort of the mid 2010s yeah um i remember it being announced that he was um going to direct castlevania and my first thought because i'm so funny was that was going to be about a military squad going under Dracula's castle because underneath Dracula's castle there's been a lab trying to discover the secret of immortality (laughs) Um, and while he never did Castlevania ultimately but yeah you're right he was talking about it as late as 2012 the latest photos from uh, Monster Hunter seems to be a military squad (laughs) in Monster Hunter land and they have released photos of someone holding a a big fuck off sword from the video game so We'll, we'll wait and see. Open mind on this podcast. We yes. will see. But um, yes. yeah, I have to say, I, I'm quite, I was quite happy to hear he wasn't doing Castlevania. But something I did read, which was quite interesting, once, Car- once Paul W.S. Anderson was not going to be 
the director. Somebody else called uh, Sylvian White was brought on board. And he said, quote, uh, most of the vampire films have been set present or set in the future uh, from Blade to Underworld. And I was attracted by the chance to make a dark epic period movie that has an almost anime feel to it. Which I think is quite interesting considering the, the look of what we end up getting in the, in the new series. Yeah, but would you say that Castlevania is an anime? That's the big question, isn't it? It's, um, it's described on Wikipedia as anime-influenced. And while a lot of the people who did the actual work on it, on the show, are from um, the world of anime, I think there were people who worked on uh, Vampire Hunter D, is okay. that, stuff like that. But it's certainly an American production. But With, uh, is Warren Ellis British? He's British. British, British writer. British yeah. writer. And lots um, of British... Well, everyone has to sound British if it's in the past. That's just that's law. Just, yes, exactly. Unless... Well, I was going to say, unless you're in Star Wars, we've had set a very long time ago. <laughs> yeah. But the thing is, the look of this show takes a lot from the look of the series from uh, Symphony of Night onwards. So... The games, they originated on the NES, uh, or the Famicom and then the NES, and the first game was uh, basically your, your your average platformer, where instead of jumping on the enemies, you'd whip them with your uh, vampire killer whip, and uh, the sequel, called Simon's Quest, diverged from a standard platform formula where you could go around a map and explore different sections, much like it's... Uh, uh, the other franchise, Metroid, where the term Metroidvania comes from. Well, Metroidvania is basically a genre where it's not linear. You can go back on yourself and unlock other rooms. But uh, Castlevania 3 was the game which introduced you being able to have a, a companion. And you could choose from, I think, three others, two of which are in this franchise. In the TV series. In the TV series, I'm sorry. Alucard, who is the son of Dracula... And I think this is called is a, a Dahampir. Is that how is you it, pronounce it? I would just say Dampir. Dampir. Yeah. And if you hadn't guessed, Alucard is Dracula backwards. Which is kind of funny. <laughs> <laughs> it's very it's very kind of video gamey Japanese and and then you know, when they created the character Alucard, I didn't think that twenty years later or whatever be having um sort of a serious actor talking to his son, Alucard. Well, they they do bring that up in the show, and he does say that's not his actual name. That's the name that has been bestowed upon oh, him. Oh, by the by the masses. His actual his actual name is Adrian. I don't know. I haven't really got a problem with reversing the names because I reverse my name when I play RPGs. <laughs> my name is Harry Steele. My character in Skyrim is Elysia. <laughs> mm, very nice. Which um, what do you think Alucard's porn star name is then? Well. Um, how, how do you work that out again? It's uh, isn't it like pet and your pet? So, oh, he's got a pet. No, no. There's what's, another character. What's, with a pet. what's the name of Hector's pet? Yes. Caesar. Okay, so there's a zombie dog called Caesar. So let's say he also takes Caesar walkies. What's the other one? It's your mother's maiden name. Oh, but we'll just Caesar, say Caesar. I don't know why Hector. Places where he's born is Wallachia. Yeah, um, this isn't going to work. We no. won't be able to hack into Hector's um, no laptop. Anyway, there's probably a lot of sexy fan art of Alucard out there because he's he's um he I think he's a main character, a playable character in other games. I think I think Symphony of the Night you play as Alucard, and so his look and I guess as we were saying, the look of the series is very much indebted to the artwork 
by Ayami Kojima, which was created for that game and has subsequently influenced, I think, a lot of the look and style and feel of Castlevania yeah, series. Yeah, I mean, this is an unfair way of describing it, but it's sort of generic pretty boy anime type of stuff. But before that, it was pretty much generic muscly 80s heroes yeah it was sort of he-man versus dracula yeah and of course simon belmont who's the star of the um castlevania one and two and, and several other games um he is showing up in smash brothers ultimate yes um and you know it goes without saying and we'll talk about this more in the show but a whip is a fucking cool weapon <laughs> and um yeah it's useful for both killing and also for swinging hmm and whip cracking away, whip crack away, whip crack away. Yes. You can for, sing that. For musical numbers. <laughs> and musical numbers. But we, we cut sidetrack a bit. In terms of the look of this show is absolutely appropriate for the franchise. And yes. One thing I like about Adi Shankar, again, he, he was quoted as saying that um, when he came on board, they were trying to get it as a live action show. And he said, this isn't going to work. No, mm. it needs to be animation. And so one thing I appreciate about him is that... He views animation not as a genre, but as a, a, a way, a, a filmmaking style, yeah, which is how medium, it should be. Yeah. It's a medium, that's the what I was trying to say. And I respect him for it. So have you played many of the Castlevania games then? Well, actually, going way back then, I remember them coming out. I never owned... We never owned Castlevania on a NES when it originally came out. But I remember being fascinated by seeing it being played on arcade machines you used to get these nez arcade machines where you put in some money and you'd play one of the several preloaded nez games and one of them was castlevania and i remember just looking at it being fascinated and i feel i must have played it because i i do vividly remember trying to use the stairs in castlevania <laughs> and the games certainly have a, an interesting relationship with staircases because you're you are barely able to do anything when you're on a staircase and when you've got projectiles flying at yeah, you it can be swooping down quite annoying and then if you press the wrong button you jump through the staircase to your doom but luckily the old nintendo classic the nes classic and the super nes classic have come out i've skimmed castlevania one i think i've got a good chunk into castlevania one i skimmed castlevania two and i haven't played three but last night i finished super castlevania four on the super nintendo i managed to defeat dracula um with a lot of help from the, the reset, rewind function. <laughs> Do you want to know how many times I use that? Go on. One less than infinity. <laughs> but, you know, I've, got, I've got not got enough time to go back to the start of a lever every time Dracula kills me. Yeah, this is the dedication and work that we put into these episodes. Yeah, we're grown-ups. We, de- we defeated Dracula just for the benefit of recording a podcast. Yeah, but I really enjoyed Castlevania 4, Super Castlevania. Um I was getting that thrill where certain monsters show up in the in the cartoon show, which are absolutely bosses in the game. So that was cool. I have also read Dracula, the book, <laughs> <laughs> which um, which was very useful in watching this show. It is quite a boring book. Mm. Have, you, have you read it at all? No. It's obviously a classic, but it's actually quite. There's quite a lot of text and not much Dracula. <laughs> And if I was to ever make uh, an adaptation of that book myself, it it usually starts with uh, Keanu Reeves going to uh, Transylvania. The actor. The actor Keanu Reeves. And there he meets Gary Oldman. And then he uh, we cut to Winona Ryder reading his diary. 
And um, I always thought it'd be interesting to tell it just through the diary as a bookend thing where she's reading back of all the horrible things which has happened to her husband. So uh, anyway. Who's your favourite Dracula? My favourite Dracula? Well, Bela Lugosi, um, again, that film, the classic Universal film, is kind of dull as well. It's based on a stage play. So it's there's a lot of just a standing in the drawing room just talking about Dracula. Bram Stoker's Dracula, the Francis Ford Coppola version, is camptastic, is incredibly hammy, and I've got a soft spot for that. It's a very ripe movie. But Christopher Lee, actually, in the Hammer Horror films, he's... You think you think you look at these hammer horror films and you think they're super duper cheesy with with the roughs and the big bosoms and stuff like that, but the image of Christopher Lee rigid in the door frame is really freaking terrifying. Yeah, he's a very tall man, and as is the Dracula in this animated series yeah. too. Yeah, you just I watched that only a few years ago. And yeah, I was struck by how scary he was. And I can imagine it being absolutely terrifying back in the 70s. What about well, yourself? Fi- 50s Oh, 50s. Originally. Oh, gosh, I mean, yeah. yeah. Uh, Dracula is such a malleable character, isn't he? Because he's out of license, so he can be pretty much every- anything. How about yourself? Have you um, played much of the games? Uh, similar to you. I mean, like PlayStation era games, I, I always was maybe a little bit put off, actually, by the Castlevania games and maybe the artwork. I did think it was maybe just a bit too... I don't know. They, the games had very strange titles and it seemed like it was very deep into the mythos and it felt, like, impenetrable. But, coincidentally enough, I think I did play a little bit of Blood Omen Legacy of Cain, which mm-hmm. was a similar, slightly artsy-fartsy vampire game on the PlayStation and like maybe 1997 as well and that had lots of your character killing people then monologuing for five minutes about oh what am i i'm a monster <laughs> i'm destroying people but i need all this blood mm. um after i have a share bag of um uh, jelly babies all to myself that's how i feel <laughs> <laughs> like, what am i doing <laughs> to myself but yes, in terms of the Castlevania games proper, I, yeah, similarly, I played a bit of Castlevania 1, which I enjoyed, played a bit of Castlevania 2, which I did not enjoy. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's meant to be, as viewed as uh, they went off course of that one. Yeah, I mean, it's similar to how first Zelda game and second Zelda game, they shifted the perspective and the, and so Castlevania... People want something different, they thought. Yeah. No. <laughs> we just want the same again and again. Mm. Castlevania. 30 times. Yeah. So Castlevania 2, um, yeah. I mean, you spent, you mentioned the titles earlier, and I've got the titles here, and you're all right. I wonder if you can guess, is this a real title? Okay. Or is this a fictional title? Castlevania, Portrait of Innocence. Incorrect. What do you mean? Not, not real? Not real. Yes, that's right. Uh, Castlevania... Rondo of Sorrow. Not real. Correct. Because it's Rondo of Blood. Ah. Uh, See, so, yeah, I know a few. Castlevania Order of Judgment. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Maybe... I think you can tell we haven't prepared this <laughs> no. section. No, but I mean, the games... I mean, it reminds me of the fucking um, Bourne novels. Or, or is it Robert, Robert London? Ludlum. Ludlum no, novels. I can't remember. Where it's like the something-something... And it's always like, you know, the Bourne conspiracy, the the Tesco 
Club card. The Tesco club card. The, I don't know. And it's like Cloverfield, or the, the Cloverfield Paradox or whatever. But yeah, we've got here Castlevania, uh, Legacy of Darkness, Circle of the Moon, Harmony of Dissonance, Aria of Sorrow, Lament of Innocence, Dawn of Sorrow, Curse of Darkness, Portrait of Ruin. Again, it reminds me of um, how loads of fantasy games on your mobile phone very much paraphrase Game um, Game of Thrones. And it's always sort of like, you know, Party of War yeah. or, or like Game of fire or clash of swords yeah that's thing that's the thing um so uh, yeah but i played a bit of castlevania super castlevania 4 and yeah i enjoyed that as well so so what watching the series we weren't necessarily au fait with characters and story beats mm, we heard and, of vampires we we yeah we'd heard what a vampire was mm. yeah so it was interesting after watching the show to go back to the games and realise how impressively faithful it actually was mm. in many respects. Certainly made by fans. Yeah. For the fans. Yeah. Which they say all the time, but they be lying. <laughs> so before we go any further, I suppose we should say spoilers for Castlevania, the Netflix show. We're not going to go through this uh, review beat for beat because it's a TV show, not a 90-minute movie. And as we said earlier, though, it is not that long of a TV show. And it's one of those great TV shows where they're only half an hour long (laughs) each episode. So you can... uh, But by the time you get to the end, you want to watch the next one. Yeah. Um, So this series was written by uh, Warren Ellis, who's mainly known as a comic book writer. But um, he's also, I read, he was one of the writers on the video game Dead Space, which in itself got an adaptation uh, as well, which we'll cover in the future. I mean, I know him most from... He did the reboot of James Bond comics, which I get and I enjoyed, and he seemed to get the character down pat. But he, he does like uh, he does like the blood. He does like the, the violence. He doesn't shy away from it. And he likes religious themes, it seems, or at least yes, very much anti-religion so. or anti-belief systems. Yeah, so the, the first bulk of... Um, first thrust of Castlevania is definitely... The church done fucked up everything. <laughs> yes. So let's talk about season one, which, as we said, was four episodes mm. and serves as much about setting up the characters and the world of Castlevania mm. for, I guess, more payoff in season two. Well, Warren Ellis said that he, when approaching this, because he wrote the scripts actually a decade before the show entered into production, around 2007, 2008, and he's going to write three story arcs so okay. that they would be semi-self-contained. And if they never did uh, a second season, as it were, then it wouldn't be too much of a pain for it to end there. And it only requires small tweaks when the show got greenlit in uh, in more recent times. So yes, this first season is pretty much the first story arc he, he wrote. And um, how does it begin, Rory? Well, it's set in Wallachia, mm. which um, is kind of Romania, Transylvania mm. sort of region. We're in the mid-15th century... Basically, the setup of the show is uh, there's a dude who lives in a castle. He's called Dracula. He's got teeth. He got them fangs. Well, he's called Vlad Dracula Tepesh. Oh yeah, he the actor who portrays him, Graham McTavish. McTavish is Dracula. What, what, is it? Wait, what are you saying? I don't know. It was a, he said that with relish. 
Yes. We have uh, yeah, Graham Tavish as the voice of Dracula. And he basically lives in a castle and... Counting things, I'm assuming. Yes. Ha, 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 ha. Counting all the people that he's impaled on big spikes outside <laughs> of his castle. One skeleton, two skeletons. Four hundred thousand. Oh, I've lost count. I'll just have to kill a bunch of more people. <laughs> Actually, to be fair, Graham McTavish doesn't adopt a Count Dracula style voice. No, in the in the games, I listened to some Symphony of Night uh, dialogue, and it was very much early PlayStation dialogue. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's hammy. <laughs> mm. But charming in its own way. Yes, hammy but charming. Die, monster. You don't belong in this world. It was not by my hand that I'm once again given flesh. I was called here by humans who wish to pay me tribute. Tribute? You steal men's souls and make them your slaves. Perhaps the same could be said of all religions. Your words are as empty as your soul. Mankind ill needs a savior such as you. What is a man? A miserable little pile of secrets. But enough talk. How about you? Uh, so Dracula lives in this castle. And We've then, established that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Castlevania of a title, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And then one day, uh, a young lady by the name of Lisa mm-hmm. knocks on his door mm-hmm. and very bravely, just basically sort of asks him if uh, she can study his science and magic and stuff. So she demands that Dracula teaches her his arcane knowledge. And you know what? She really makes an impression, this character. Yeah, she's not in it very much, as we soon find out. But um, you can kind of see, even though we only see them together for a couple minutes, how suddenly she kind of convinces him to be nice to humans, take mm. a chance on humans, so that she can teach them science, the ways of science before it was all kind of forgotten by man. Um, so they're not superstitious anymore. Uh, she, he admires her bravado, her intelligence, um, her respect. And one thing I like about the this series is that it's definitely the old magic is basically advanced science type yes. deal. Although there is like an actual wizard in it. <laughs> but we'll get to that, I suppose. This character, Dracula, is a tragic character. Yes. He's not, although one, one of the big things I like about the show is that you the, the vampire characters are there to erase the humans. But um, you definitely feel that this is a this is a tragedy which befalls Dracula. If he hadn't gone mad, he would have... Um, could have brought great knowledge and wisdom to all of humankind. But yes. he, ch- he chooses to be dominated by hatred. And why does he get, Why does he choose to be dominated by hatred? I mean, just the, qu- the question of fridging comes up, doesn't it? Because um, I've read some articles, whenever uh, a romantic interest is killed to advance a plot, it quite easily falls into a conversation about fridging. If you, do- if you haven't heard the expression before... It gets its name from a, a Green Lantern comic, I believe, where the Green Lantern's girlfriend, who was a, a character in of herself, is murdered by the villain and then um, stuffed into a fridge for him to find. And in a nutshell, it's whenever a female character just, is just killed just so the man thinks, oh, now I really don't like the baddie. 
I've, so I've seen a few articles about Castlevania's supposed fridging of Lisa, but I don't think that's really the case here. The, the death of Lisa absolutely hangs a shadow over the entire entire show and it's all about Dracula's he, he doesn't become heroic he becomes a monster mm. and it's about it's about dealing with that grief but this is all enacted by the church and again it's quite rare to I think we mentioned this back in our Assassin's Creed review I, it's unusual I find for mainstream stuff to say the church is bad yes I mean the theme of this that I guess more the first series than mm. the second is a very much a kind of religion versus science uh, setup. In the at the start of the second series does have a flashback to to kind of explain a bit more what happens. But basically, Lisa. It's about twenty years later. Lisa is giving sort of medicines to the local community based on the science that she has uh, sort of picked up from Dracula, mm-hmm. and um, the church come in and try her as a witch and burner at the stake in front mm. of a big audience and what what happens then is as you say that dracula seeks his revenge mm. on wallachia for killing his wife yeah dracula happens to be away at that part top point. oh did we say that lisa and dracula got married and had, um, a, and had a kid <laughs> well we certainly um imply that they had they were quite fond of each other yeah. but um yes uh, lisa convinces dracula to see the world and go on a bit of a spiritual journey just to see humanity and he comes back all kind of pretty much as end saying how much how great humans are and then like literally the first thing they do when he gets home is murder his wife yeah Yeah, so dracula is not pleased is he yeah dracula and lisa were married and had a child lisa is burnt in the stake as a witch and dracula is as you say not best pleased Mm. and he gives wallachia one year to basically leave Mm. to clear out it's funny, he, I think he says leave, and then later on he says to make your peace. Because he plans to kill all humans, so I don't know what leaving really does. Yeah. But um, anyway, he does give him a, a year, which I quite liked, quite chilling. And then... And reasonable. Reasonable. Then they do kind of sweet FA for yeah. a year. The church are a bit like, ah, well, it's one year later, nothing happened. They literally have a, a procession about that. Yeah. And then it starts raining blood. I wonder whether it's called, like, the, the Dracula was wrong ceremony or something. Yeah. Do they think they put that <laughs> in Dracula their... is a big silly billy. <laughs> they put that in their diaries, like, the day after. Probably didn't mean it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, and so it starts raining blood and he unleashes a horde of, of giant blood thirsty monsters I give you one year for lackeys you have one year to make your peace and remove any marks you have made upon the land one year and then I'll wipe all human life from the land of Wallachia you took that which I love so I will take from you everything you have and everything you have ever been one year and I think an advantage of it being animation is that I just, it seems you can do really apocalyptic imagery. I mentioned that the bloody rain, but you've got crowds of people running away in absolute fear. And um, Dracula's castle it has the ability to teleport mm-hmm. and it appears in Wallachia or in the city. Much like Count Duckula's castle, where I get major Count Duckula vibes. 
I was re- I really wanted to read up on this and see if Warren Ellis was a secret Count Duncula fan. I mean, he's British. British, so must be. But he must be, <laughs> of course, yes. Cosgrove Hall. Exactly. Guaranteed. I was literally describing Count Duncula in a pub to an American lady uh, not so long ago. And I said the theme tune went in the heart of Transylvania, in the vampire hall of fame, yeah, something, something, something. <laughs> and then some Somerset bloke went, Duckula! <laughs> and then he walked past. You know, uh, Bite Beaster Man, he's a vegetarian. I see. What were we talking about? Oh, his castle. His, his castle appears, and yeah, you just properly get the sense that this is the end of the fucking world. <laughs> yeah, I think Dracula and this is like an all-powerful mega-vampire. And it does generally sell the fact that this is an unstoppable Mm. force of darkness which cannot be defeated. And these monsters basically just infest the land and come every night to basically do gruesome things. Yeah, I mean, there's a scene when one of the villagers closes their shutters as vampires go past. I'm like, that's not going to (laughs) help. What I like is that he is absolutely how he looks in the video games. He's flipping tall. And in a video game, bosses are big because they're just the big boss. But um, they make a point of calling him a giant. And I mean, this is really, he comes from the video games. He's called Dracula, which lends weight. I... I know that in the games they just used it because it was out of license and was just a very recognisable name. And in the the games in Japan were originally not called Castlevania. Mm. They're originally called Akumajo Dracula, Mm. which stands for Devil's Castle Dracula. (laughs) So front and centre, it's this is Dracula the video game, basically. But I think when you've got people talking about Dracula a lot, they don't say Count Dracula, I notice, they just call him Dracula. It does not using his official title. Well, that's Sir Dracula to you. Funnily enough, in the there is an official timeline of the Castlevania series, and the events of Bram Stoker's book are in there. Okay, so they they happen. So I'm assuming anything he becomes a count at one point. <laughs> I think a lot of vampire shows have to get to it. I think Buffy had a Dracula. I think Blade Three had a Dracula in it. If you want to say this this vampire shit is real. Throw in a Dracula. Throw in a Dracula. How many Draculas? As many as you want. Yeah, it's fine. It's just like, oh, it's a vampire. Great. But it's like, but he's a Dracula. Mm. Ooh. Exactly. It gives you, it's the cultural cachet of Dracula. So yeah, when this attack happens, it's like, the, this all happens in the first episode. And it's um, nice, quick storytelling. In the, in the first 30 minutes, it sells the love between Dracula and Lisa, and that's all down to the voice acting and the writing. It sells the the viciousness of the church and, and the horror of of Dracula's power. And then there's like a five-minute conversation about fucking a goat um, in the tavern, which is where we introduce to Trevor Belmont. So Dracula is this mad, bad... Sad <laughs> Vlad. Mad, bad, sad Vlad. <laughs> Uh, who in the whole of Wallachia could possibly defeat him? It would be Trevor, a Belmont of the Belmont. Belmont. The last Belmont. Trevor of the House of Belmont. I've written down here who plays who. I had Dracula, Graham McTavish, and I've written here Trevor was played by Trevor Belmont. (laughs) The the man from Belmonte. (laughs) Oh my god. Um, No, it's Richard Armitage portraying Trevor Belmont. So so we got two dwarfs from from The Hobbit in here. We got a couple of dwarfs. 
Trevor's characterization is funny. I I would say he probably is the hmm least interesting from a characterization standpoint. But I like really like his backstory. Yes, he is. Um, the one one thing that's just lovely about the games is that you can just dip in and out of the of the Belmont clan of vampire killers, and we meet this one who's also the star of the game Castlevania Three, as is the other main characters. He's at his, he's the last of his clan. He's a drunk, and this is a I think a character which comes up quite a lot. But I just did get a sense of of. Of his history and his his um he, how why, why he wants to reject it, but I also appreciated that when he does fight, he he fights like a motherfucker. Well, sort of. I mean, he's introduced in a sloppy barroom brawl when mm. some locals, because the Belmont name has a certain um, well connotations. People drew him out because they think the church rejected them, even though they were sworn to defeat vampires and save humans. In the same way, a little bit as Dracula, they've slightly he's doesn't care about any other humans apart from himself uh, because Mm. of just how his family have been treated and uh, persecuted in the past. So he's a sloppy, blunt, anti-hero. Yeah, and again, it all stems from the church doing everything I can to, to mess things up because if the church... And this is the same as the game, Castlevania 3. If the church hasn't banished the Belmonts, then they'll probably be better at handling things like a Dracula. Yeah, exactly. Uh, just a little sidebar, uh, shout out to Matt Frewer, mm. who portrays the Bishop of Dreshit. And it's just the perfect evil uh, voice. He does that whole sort of, you have been an affront to Oh, yes, we do like that. That's right, a bit Brian Sewell. Very deliciously evil. She was a witch convolting with Satan. Mm. All of devilish acts. Makes it sound so good. I know. (laughs) Where's where's my Satan? I mean, it's quite difficult. When you've got Dracula raining down fire and things, to have a human character seem like a hissable villain is quite quite an accomplishment. Yeah. And uh, another, I think the third, we've mentioned Dracula and Trevor. One of the other main characters that we encounter in the first season is uh, Cypher, who is um, in an order called the Speakers. And they're sort of a subset religious order who have also been banished by the bishop. I think, are they dedicated to destroying evil as well? Or are they more historians? Well, they share stories. They pass knowledge and history down mm, um, because they don't write anything down but the speakers they all have um stories in their own heads and um i think perhaps out of all the characters cypher is my favorite character uh, much like trevor is uh, sort of a template with a twist uh cypher is there's a precedent for characters like cypher who are the female nag the, fe- the female character who has to get the man-child boys and she she calls them man-child at one point the man-child boys to uh, focus and things but i don't think she a is a nag i think she is the definitely positioned as the sensible one but no she's here to destroy dracula but so she's really smart she's really um competent and she looks really cool she's shooting fireballs at people yeah she's a scholar of magic she says that not a witch Mm. i'm a scholar of magic because i serve no demon and do no ill but basically that means she can just throw 
like icicles at people and generate fireballs and just mm. do all kinds of badass stuff too. Out of all the actors really in the main cast, I've actually seen, I've not seen really any of her things, um, but I thought she gave a great vocal performance. Whenever she opens up a new book, uh, a spell book, she sounds genuinely fascinated. So Cypher is actually rescued by Trevor um, because she was um, turned into stone by a Cyclops, which is a nod to the uh, video game as well. And then they team up, don't they? Yes, the quest for the speeches to defeat, well, to save Wallachia and stop Dracula is there is a legend of a sleeping saviour, a sleeping soldier, who's hidden under Greshit, which is Mm -hmm. the town they're in. And it turns out, once they find this sleeping saviour, he's not your messiah. He's a very pretty boy. Hmm, Beautiful boy. Yeah, it's... Alucard. My main man, Alucard. Now, I thing is, because I wasn't au fait with Castlevania 3 when I watched the first season of the show, I was dead surprised who it was. Um, we actually are introduced to Alucard in the first episode, briefly, but he's very much a silhouetted figure can, trying to convince Dracula not to commit genocide. They have a split-second fight, and then we cut to black, and I'd, I'd totally forgotten about him by the time they get to Alucard. Yeah, Alucard tried to stop his father, Dracula, and obviously yeah, Alucard, his mother, it was Lisa. Mm. And the reason why he was residing in this catacomb was to heal the wounds mm. um, that he sustained in trying to defeat his father the mm. first time round. And after a pretty cool sword fight, maybe the best action scene in the first series between Trevor and Alucard. There's a nice sword fight where they're uh, throwing barbs at each other. It's quite delicious. And Alucard is um, sort of testing um, the skills of Trevor too. Mm. Um, Is he using his floaty sword in this as well? Is that later? He's using his teleporty stuff. Mm. I can't remember about floaty I mean, sword. A big thrill of the show, even for someone who's only played some of the games, is when you see special moves in a game. <laughs> it's it's so exciting, and his teleport is super cool. He just you see like him get multiplied, and then he arrives at his destination. I mean, the animation quality is is generally pretty good. I mean. In terms of, we said the design, there's some really beautiful backdrops. Oh, yeah. Very beautiful. I think you can look uh, up the backdrops online. Yeah. There's lots of very nicely framed shots and composed, and the lighting's really beautiful. Um, It has that sort of slightly reduced frame rate, I Mm. think, you see in in a lot of animations, a lot of particularly sort of anime-style shows as well. But... That doesn't matter so much, particularly in the action scenes. It really... It allows you to hold a cool image just for a split second longer before they go in. And it it means that uh, you still get the energy and you're impressed with... You know, I was sort of like looking at them doing backflips and jumps and think, oh, that was impressive, and realised, oh, yeah, someone drew that mm-hmm. and was doubly impressed. It wasn't just like, oh, wow, how did they manage that? It's just like, yeah, they drew it, because that's what you can do with drawings. You can make them do anything. The the fights in this, there's a, a massive fight at the end of the second series where all our heroes are sh- using their powers to their fullest degree and fighting multiple vampires and creatures and they use a bit of music from the video game but done up by an orchestra and it reminded me 
Now, are we allowed to talk spoilers about Infinity War now or after you? No. <laughs> well, suffice it to say, superheroes do fightings in um, Infinity War. And I found these fights a lot more interesting because everything was of a piece. Everything, when you watch a live action fight with a lot of superpowers involved, you just get the compo- composition done and, and it's, it just doesn't quite click. But with this, it was absolutely gorgeous. And, and I, again, just think animation was definitely the way to go. It really, like, despite it being, yeah, like sort of 2D animation predominantly, it really sold the physicality mm. in that scene. I mean, I, I think that particular sequence in series two, fighting the vampires of the world, um, <laughs> yeah. is, is what they do with all their special moves. And I think that's definitely a high point of all the episodes. And I think, yes, using that music, so it used the tune Bloody Tears. Mm. Um, I think some criticism of the first season was fans of the games liked the tunes, liked the themes, and... Uh, the theme Bloody Tears is is used in a lot of the games and it's it's very familiar to fans. And so I really liked the music in the TV show, hmm. but some criticism from fans was that it didn't sort of capture maybe some of the music and themes of the games. No, but to it's introduce, quite impressive. Yeah, but to introduce that at that sort of pivotal moment, it's a bit like James Bond when the Bond theme hits yeah. or, you know, Star Wars when you know the fanfares go mm. and, and that kind of thing at the pivotal moments. It's very much just at the right point of the it, series. It allows the characters to gel. In fact, when we, we, we've gone around back to the start again of Alucard, when Alucard appears, because I wasn't expecting him, I was like, oh, there's this third jerk character. What's the point? And I just thought, I quite like the two of them. I don't really like the idea of them just joining up with a vampire. But from the second, from the first episode of the second series, Alucard's is just a great character and he's really sarcastic. He's voiced by um, James Callis, who is famous for being in uh, Battlestar Galactica, playing a sniveling, sniveling uh, Gaius Boltar. And he was a great character in that. It could have easily been dude bros or it could have easily been kind of mm. like macho, macho posturing. But I think the character the dynamics between Trevor and Alucard is different. They are... They, 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 they're often insulting each other and then laughing it off. I think they recognise each mm. other's potential and, and skills. Trevor has every right to be suspicious of Alucard because his whole family has spent their Dracula's. life legacy trying to defeat vampires and Dracula. Mm. And Alucard is allowed to be suspicious of Trevor because his species or whatever, mm. half his family and, and stuff, is is the exact side kind of people that uh, Trevor and his family have been... Mm. Design, you know, trying I mean, to kill. The thrust of the second season is there's two thrusts really. Uh, that our hero's story is finding the Belmont treasury, which has lots of um, magical books and lots of items um, to to kill vampires. And yeah, there's a bit where Cipher. Uh, it's kind of like geeking out over all this vampire killing stuff, and Alucard is like, mm, yeah. It's kind of cool. What's my family you're talking about? Mm. They also find uh, a, a box of spells about penises, which is maybe the high point of the show. Um, but this is actually scattered lots of lots of humour, even in the, in the vampire thrust, um, story arc. Dracula's brooding by the fireplace, and um, one of his generals, uh, a vampire called Carl Miller, 
she goes, my Lord Dracula. And Dracula goes, yes, yes, we all know who we are. <laughs> and yeah. I thought that was hilarious. So, um, and I, I read that this was intentional as well, even though this is definitely not a show for kids and definitely, again, has apocalyptic stuff, it's anti-religion, innocents get beheaded left, right and centre. There is a lot of like dark gallows humour, which I always appreciate mm. and done well. The Belmont Hold, our family library and trove. The collecting knowledge and material of generations of Belmonts who fought the creatures of the night. That sounds interesting. If it survives. If there are solutions to the problems of finding and killing Dracula, they are in the hold. You're guessing, though. I am guessing. I can't read or understand magic, but my family stored everything they found, including books of magic and whatever other weird stuff they came across. I just can't do anything with it. But you two can. Fortunate indeed, then, that I chose not to kill you and eat you, Belmont. And that I decided against gutting you, flaying you, and turning you into shoes, Alucard. Such a merry band we are. I will find us a covered wagon and horses if you two can manage not to kill each other while I'm gone. Oh, please. We're not children. He shouldn't die. Yes, fuck you. <laughs> so season one ends with a trio being formed, mm -hmm. and their plan is to defeat Dracula. Yeah, that would be a good idea, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's about time. Because I watched series one when it was first broadcast, I guess, under yeah. first released, and I thought, oh, this was fine. I, I I enjoyed it. It was it was okay, but it definitely felt a little bit like yeah, a lot of setup. Yeah, it felt a bit light. I mean, I guess I didn't quite realise it was going to be so short, and I did mm. very much go, oh. The, I guess the spine of season one is also the involvement of the church because the bishop gets murderized by one of the demons and that was a quite sinister scene. And That kind of stuff is not so much at the forefront in the second se no. season. First season is very much... It's, it's not sort of necessarily, you know, God doesn't exist. It's more about the corruption, doing terrible things in the name of God. Yeah. And I think one of the demons does allude to the fact that God isn't watching. And yes. I think you can take that literally or suggesting that God doesn't exist. Yeah. I guess it's like for every Dracula, there has to be an anti-Dracula. Mm. <laughs> well, I guess Alucard is a little bit the anti-Dracula or the half-Dracula. Mm. Well, he's the son of Dracula. Do yes. you think um when, <laughs> do you think in uh, the monster mash when Dracula and his son appear oh. it's um Alucard maybe I mean this isn't the first time Alucard has appeared in animated form because just before recording we were watching Captain N the games master where the count is lamenting his skateboarding shades wearing cool dude 90s would it be late 80s son and it's you've got to check that out. It's, he's a million miles away from Alucard. Yeah, this is a very different interpretation of yeah, the characters I think he, of Castlevania. He's basically Pookie and... Um, Poochie. Poochie from The Simpsons. And he's... Um, I think he does say something like, Whoa, man. Widdy-dee-widdy-dee, whoa. Alucard's in the house. Pretty much. <laughs> but yeah, the involvement of the church pretty much closes out series in Series 1. And Series 2 was a bit of a shock to the system. All of a sudden, there's a vampire war council. 
Yes, this is definitely the Game of Thrones it up, mm. I think, in season two. So we, we've established this hero trio, but then the focus, I'd say, of season two, because this hero trio spend most of the season locked up in, as we mentioned, this the Belmont Trove. Yeah, they get basically, to quite sharpish, don't they? Yeah, they basically, they have some straps with some beasts on the way, but it's mostly them in a library looking at books. It's my kind of stuff. <laughs> Love libraries. Um, Visit your local library, please. Yes, please support your local you library. You might find... I want to go to your local library, ask if you've got any books about vampire hunting or killing. Or penis spells. Or penis spells. By J.R. Hartley. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I guess most of the, the, the manoeuvring, the characterized com- character conflict comes from the old vampires. It's Is Castlevania Trevor's show or Dracula's show? I think in a way it's more Dracula's show. Well, he kind of falls away in series one, but partly because there's so few episodes and yeah. quite a lot of plot. Dracula, we, we, I mean, I guess we didn't spend much time in Dracula's castle first time around. So Castlevania season two, very much castle focused. <laughs> For all you castle fans I'm out there. I'm a negative review. Not enough castles. Yeah, do you think someone watched Castlevania and thought it was like, like BBC4, yes. Castlevania. Michael Portillo investigates <laughs> Dracula's castle. Oh, vampire Michael Portillo. I'm going to take a train to Dracula's castle. <laughs> <laughs> well, the first epi- series very much seemed to imply there is but one vampire and he's going mental because one of the church people at one point, church people, priests, <laughs> one of them say, I thought Dracula was a myth, a legend. Suddenly we discover that there are vampires overseeing loads of the countryside, loads of different kingdoms, as it were. And they've all been brought together to hear what the fuck Dracula's doing. It very much expands the world, the vampire mm. world. It expands the lore and uh, it also introduces a bunch of new characters. Mm. Uh, mostly Dracula's army, including a, a selection of vampires and a couple of humans too. Yeah, these are mostly from the games. Um, not always exactly how they are portrayed in the games. Um, there is uh, Carmilla who's the last one to arrive and she immediately sets herself as being the uh, the one who has most of Dracula's ear. She starts going behind his back a bit, doesn't she? Definitely got her eyes on the throne. Mm. Um, so she's basically introduced to stir shit up quite a lot amongst the vampires. Um, we're introduced to Hector and Isaac. See, I would say Isaac and Hector. <laughs> oh, would you know? <laughs> That's what I've written. Well, I went alphabetically. Yeah, um, yeah, my first thought about those guys was, was what everyone else probably thinks. What are two humans doing helping all these vampires? Yeah, eradicate all of mankind. But they are quite close to Dracula. You find out that they've only really been in his service in the past year because he spent mm. that year in between telling Wallachia to piss off. Mm. Uh, he went in search of uh, Hector and Isaac. Building his army. To build his army. because he, So he's they're close to him because... Because they're humans, in fact, because they're not bound by thirst, they're bound by loyalty and a, and a hatred of humanity. We find out a bit more about Hector and Isaac as the show goes on with their backstories. Hector was sort of cast out because of his forge masting yes, capabilities. They're both forge masters, so they can both bring, bring things back from the dead. Yeah, he was experimenting more on animals and puppies. Yeah. So Hector is kind of thinks of humans as livestock, much like vampires do. Mm-hmm. 
And Isaac as well was beaten up roughly and sort of treated as subhuman mm. and sort of whipped and beaten and punished. And that sort of has informed, again, his view on humankind. I like how these two humans were very different because Hector is played as, as a naive child and Isaac is somebody who can, can see... I mean, he still gets tricked ultimately, but he can definitely sees the looks for the bigger picture and yeah i think isaac is one of my probably my second favorite character i mean he spends a lot of his time sort of self-flagellating um he's got this leather uh strap with spikes on it and he's sort of punishing himself to be pure and then later on he uses that weapon to tear a guy's face off and it's like ew <laughs> just yeah on that i mean shall we talk a little bit about gore yeah the game's Originally on the Nintendo was censored in in Europe and America. A lot of the blood was changed to different colours. It didn't look like blood. So perhaps never really considered a terribly bloody franchise. But it is a very gory show. Particularly in the first series, because it's lots of night beasts ravaging villages and things, it takes a lot of pleasure of heads being ripped off and limbs being removed and guts spilling out everywhere. And maybe because the second season has, it's more humans fighting beasts and there is a vampire attack on a village which has bloodletting and it did seem like the least practical way. If you're really into blood, mm-hmm. they do a lot of just ripping heads off and gushing blood into pe- into their mouths. Like surely you want to tap that resource a little bit more you know you'd like kill someone and then it's just like quick 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 get the cup get the cup get the mug like fill up the barrels here's a question for you up until relatively recently i always assumed vampires have kind of hollow fangs and they suck blood up through the through their fangs like they're straws but i now realize that most people think they bite they penetrate the vein so their blood gushes and they sort of like, they do drink it up through their own yeah. tongue and throat and stuff. Yeah. So yeah, interesting. You've got many different versions of vampires. No, there's yeah. Like, there's fangs at the side, fangs at the front buck front, teeth. And then there's straw teeth vampires. <laughs> straw teeth vampires. Like a curly straw. I think sometimes violence is gratuitous. What I'm trying to say is I don't think the gore in this was... I think what you're trying to say is my feelings is that I never enjoyed seeing people being horribly mutilated in this show. And I feel like the show is making you disgusted by the horrible stuff It's selling the horror. Yeah. I mean, it's that classic thing where some people don't like horror films. They they criticise a horror film for being too bloody or being too scary or something too horrific happening. And like, well, what's the the point? The, The only time where there's like gore and action and things which I found cathartic was the aforementioned vampire war council climactic battle in the castle Mm. where it's the heroes fighting against the vampires and it's definitely the whole point of that scene is like look at all this cool action happening now that's true but again that's not really super bloody there are some decapitations of course yes and And, you know things being spiked into people's heads Mm. we get that we understand that but But it's not the same too there's a a moment where a vampire sliced in half by uh, a big sheet of ice which cypher has created crucially you don't see the vampire being sliced in half you just see the 
the blood strip across yeah. the sheet, and I thought that was a nice touch. So I, I feel, in a way, in in some respects too, that season two has a more mature approach to its goal. Mature not as in this is for mature audiences only, but mature as in terms of let's not just have wall to wall. It's not glorifying stuff. the violence. No, I don't think season one did that much, but I feel like the balance was more there in season two. But anyway, uh, so we have Hector and Isaac are quite crucial to the to mm. the second season, and I enjoyed those characters, and it does have an interesting dynamic. But I guess the largest character of season two is Godbrand. <laughs> I don't think you're right, but I knew you were going to say that. Um, Large yeah. in terms of personality, yes, or something. Well, he's he's voiced by is it Peter Stormare Stormare from uh, most famously from Fargo. Fargo. Though I think I read that he played um, Dracula himself in something called Batman and Dracula. Oh, okay. Um, Is it not Batman versus Dracula? No, Batman versus... No, the Batman versus Dracula. Batman and Dracula sounds like they team up. Yeah. Fight crime together. It has voice track. But yeah, um, he's the character Godbrand never features in the video games. um, But he spends a lot of his time shouting Godbrand, like, fight, 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 fight. To the point that he gets so annoying that he's murdered by Carmilla. Isaac. Oh, Isaac. I think Carmilla points Isaac in that direction, though, does she not? She's pulling the strings. Yeah, kind of like steers him in that way. I mean, in a way, like once Godbrand exits the season, like, I, I, I wouldn't necessarily say his presence was missed. But I think in season two, there's maybe a couple of episodes in the middle after he's left, which feel a bit fillery mm. in terms of the sort of pacing. I don't know. I I found him. I found him a bit of a weak link. I found. I mean, you probably are right. I think if it was just sort of these tall, thin characters moping and and plotting. There would be no fun, but he stuck out like a sore thumb. Yeah, I suppose. It's the only vocal performance which isn't whispering the whole time. I mean, as much as like the actors, a lot of... I think Dracula, Alucard and Trevor's voices could be kind of interchangeable. I actually kept forgetting who played what character because... Well, okay, so here's the difference. So Trevor... Let's talk a little bit about vocal performances while we're on Godbrand. So, because <laughs> it's definitely a vocal performance. Yeah. So Trevor, he's he's kind of slightly bored. He's like, I'm Trevor Belmont. Mm-hmm. I better go to defeat vampires now. <laughs> and then Alucard is a bit more. I am Dracula's son. Uh, you're a stupid Belmont. And he then sounds like a cat. Yeah. And then Hector <laughs> is more like. I suppose I'd better raise a dog from the dead. <laughs> These people don't seem to seem to try, struggle, struggling to remember what they Line. do. <laughs> Line. Line. Dracula's voice is quite brute. Is 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 quite powerful and um, yeah. He's got a good Dracula I, voice. I would I would say that generally I liked all the vocal performances, and even though I think sometimes, particularly in the second season. It gets a little bit repetitive, particularly if you watch them back to back, where you have just people walking into a room and discussing the same sort of themes and plotting and background stuff. And I think that would be a little bit boring if it weren't for the fact the vocal performances and the way the scenes and the animation and atmosphere are created um, maybe it's makes just, it more interesting. Maybe it's just harder to animate people talking loudly. 
a lot of the a lot of the face is just very still with yeah the, with the lips moving. a little mouth just going meep, yeah meep, meep, meep. but i would say actually i didn't really like the richard armitage performance uh, in the first season, Trevor Belmont. Um, I felt like, yes, the hmm. character's meant to be sounding a bit bored and yeah, a bit world-weary, but it did sound almost like the delivery was a bit kind of half assed It makes me wonder if there was one recording session for both seasons, though. Be interesting no, no, to know. Because I feel, I feel like he got better in the second season. Mm. And I feel like, I mean, I think that's part of the character's arc yeah. is that he improves as a person and I think yes okay maybe all of this is intentional and this is me just you know criticising something for what it was actually supposed to be but I didn't really enjoy the performance in the first season I felt it was it felt like it was in a recording studio sure. or like recorded in, at home or something it didn't really feel like the voice was coming out of the character in the setting. Yeah, and I think I would agree with that. I think um, what they were aiming for, didn't they didn't quite land in the first series, and they were aiming for something different in the second series, and they landed there. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, with, so with, with Godbrand, it's definitely the comic relief, in a way, character. But he he's, a, he's frustrated, though, that's the thing. He's definitely representing the vampires, because the big plot arc of the vampires in series two is them dealing with the fact that Dracula's quite clearly gone mad and what we're going to do and there are those loyal to him who will stay with him till the end and there are those who say saying well should we not do something about him Godbrand is is quite anxious about the lack of blood once you wipe out all of humanity where are we going to drink because I'm not drinking out of a fucking pig <laughs> and I think this reveals that and we, the audience, learn that Dracula doesn't plan to kill all humans. I think he's just wanting to raise the entire planet and destroy any sentient life. Somebody tells Dracula this is like the world's longest suicide note. Yeah, and like Dracula kind of says, you know, just all about keeping the peace for now, because in a year's time anyway, all the vampires will starve and die anyway. So mm. it doesn't really matter what happens. I think that's... Because the War Council is debating exactly how this war against Wallachia and mankind is to proceed. Because at the moment it's just night beast skirmishes willy-nilly. Mm-hmm. So they're all trying to convince Dracula to follow certain plans. Um, and Carmilla is pushing for Dracula to move his castle to Brailer. Dracula acquiesces and agrees because he... he's got tired of the squabbling. But Carmilla has been um, established to be somebody whose, I think, last master was also a crazy old vampire. And um, she doesn't want the same thing to happen to herself again. And so she coerces Hector to join her side and manages to get Dracula to move the castle, as you say. And she manages to get, I think, Hector to resurrect the bishop who was killed in series one. And he blesses the rivers of, um, what's the town Brailer. Brailer, rendering them holy, which allows her to basically do a coup. Because as, as the other vampire army goes across the bridge, she collapses the bridge and drags, and they all fall into holy water, which is like a neat little twist, I felt. And um, I kind of liked how the latter half of the season is just, just mad power grab. Mm. And, and just chaos while humanity is kept in the middle. You get, um, while this is happening, 
back at the Belmont Treasury, they finally uncovered a spell to lock the castle in place. But it takes a bit of time to get going, so the castle keeps popping around the city. And, and again, you've got these wide shots, beautiful painted backdrops of the of this ancient city with this castle popping in and out. And it's just amazing. And um, when the castle finally disappears, I think Lisa, not Lisa, um, Carmilla does uh, a great line where she says, what the fuck happened? <laughs> <laughs> Which is great, because up until this point, she's been all poised. And while Cypher is bringing the castle spell locking the castle there's a battle happening outside the treasury so it definitely gets more action-packed as the season goes on there's lots of plotting and talking and game of thrones and mm. i think as we as we said in uh, the run i, I enjoyed all that run oh yeah though. no it's 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 what? not a slow burn but what i was saying is just yes it is a lot of characters in rooms discussing plotting and plans i think the difference is Again, I'm getting very tired of this sort of thing in other Netflix shows. Like, for example, the the Marvel shows, Daredevil, Luke Cage and things. Um, there's lots to love about them. But whenever somebody sits and talks about how what their, their backstory and stares into the middle distance, I just get really bored because it's telling, not showing. But in this we do get to see like a flashback of, of Dracula going mental in his in his happier days of, <laughs> of murdering people. Yes. Um, we get to and we get to see the backstory of, of Hector and Isaac and Carmilla, and I think that just really helps. Um, but we don't get the backstory of Godbrand. We don't know don't. why he likes to either. You know, there's nothing that he won't kill, fuck, or make a boat out of. <laughs> I, I did like the line when he says. I like boats. I'm a fucking Viking. I'm supposed to make boats out of things. <laughs> yeah, that's a bit of a knowing meta humor there, I suppose. I mean, as I say, we're not going to go through the story beat for beat, but it does, all, all the arts kind of culminate a bit. The uh... Well, yeah, so Cypher spell locks Dracula's castle right on top of the Belmont Trove. Mm. So she brings the castle to them and then realises, oh shit, I put a castle on top of this. A big hole in the ground. <laughs> big hole in the ground. We that should... was a nice bit of humour as well. Yeah. She's so impressed with herself at that point. It's just like, um, you do realise that you just put a fucking castle on top of, our, on top mm. of this that's, that's just this, It's just good humour. I just think, yeah. you know, all this violent shit's happening. But, um, yeah, it's uh, it feels naturalistic as well. That's the thing. I think that's the sort of thing you might say in this situation. She's completely blown away how she's managed to transport a castle to through thin air and yeah. bring it here. And I mean, just touching on the castle transportation... I mean, one way this show implements the games is that the games have, like sections with cogs and and machinery and i feel that when the games were created that was just cool stuff to have in the background to show off the mode 7 special effects of the snes or whatever but i just feel a lot of there's been a lot of thought put into little details to make them just work in a a way that seems seems to fit the world yeah i mean there are as we've said the characters from the games references to the games but I don't think you have to know the game. I mean, we didn't know the games before we watched the show, really. Mm. It was only afterwards that we spotted the references or, or found out bits and pieces which were faithful to the games. But this doesn't feel like a video game show in that sense. It's not like anyone says to Dracula, Game over, Dracula! <laughs> <laughs> is that a compliment or not, considering this is, this is the podcast? 
I think it's I'm not it's not bad when a in a when a film feels like a video game if that's what it's going for but it the show didn't need it. it it's clear from that the games have a good narrative and interesting characters and have a tale to tell mm. so as we were saying before it's about not letting the fact that it came from a game get in the way of a good story by having to acknowledge its gaminess. The only time that there's some sort of video game acknowledgement is actually in season two, the production company, I think Powerhouse Animation, they changed their little graphics. So it's like a video game pixel sprite version of the logo and a pixelated Trevor Belmont thrashes oh, his yeah. whip and a little heart comes out of a candle. That's, That's probably cool. the only time where it's it's directly nods to the game origins the weird thing about the games is that if you collect a heart it just gives you an extra ammo and i was like <laughs> running running around trying to get more life and it was just extra ammo the only thing this game this film or this tv show i should say could have used is if uh, trevor flicked his whip at some candles and a roast chicken came out <laughs> <laughs> that would have been good well, i could just say magic <laughs> <laughs> The the secondary characters, or the new season two characters, I mean, I feel ultimately they are in there to just give, so there's more story, more content for season two. But I think they are naturally in there and they add to the story. If you strip them away, then, then the story would be severely changed. And we learn pretty much, it pretty much establishes they are going to be in this third season as well. And I'm happy to see where Carmilla, Isaac and Hector goes because... Isaac is saved by Dracula as our heroes decimate his subordinates. Dracula pushes Isaac through a portal and, and Isaac is completely distraught. Hector and Carmilla make a break for it and Dracula kicks the bucket. It's a really uh, epic battle and oh. they're all using all their skills and as much as possible and teaming up and it's all these kind of... You feel like they've almost got them and then mm. not, and something happens. I mean... They're assisting each other, which is really satisfying. Yeah. He's no ordinary vampire. No. He, you actually wonder... There's this great bit where I think Trevor is just punching him repeatedly, and it's like he's doing nothing. Yeah. And you're thinking, Trevor, <laughs> like you, he all came up to here, and you just punched him in the nose. <laughs> he's firing fireballs, which it's, is one of his moves from the game. Uh, yeah. It's Dracula. It's, it's fucking Dracula! <laughs> And the war just, like, rages through the castle. The castle itself is... The castle is itself a character. Hmm. Um, I like the turrets, which are just hanging off it with mm. nothing supporting it down below, which is such a video game aesthetic. But you can get away with it because Dracula is somebody who's got amazing technology. As I say, things culminate because the fight eventually ends up with just Alucard and Dracula fighting, and it ends up... In Alucard's old bedroom. His childhood bedroom. And it's so touching. And Dracula goes, my son, my boy. And he sort of, he didn't realise until that point he was trying to kill his, his boy. But um, I've got a soft spot for this sort of thing. I don't know why. Yeah, he's, he, he sees the room. He sees the portrait of, of him and Lisa and little baby Alucard. Mm. Um, but he has a little bit of a breakdown and I think just him your villain just but I think the bedroom sells it that's the thing I was being a bit glib earlier where I said he's only just realised but when you see your 
your adult son, but in his child's bedroom. And he, I love how he Dracula talks about how me and Lisa made these toys together. And you, mm. you realize that Dracula has been spending all the all these seasons making hell beasts, and he could just be making fluffy toys. I'm killing our boy. Yeah. I think yes, it's it's because the reason he's waging this war is because of the death of Lisa, and mm. it's like, it's not just his son that is he's trying to kill in this instance it's like the last remaining you know his humanity humanity it's lisa the bloodline it's it's you know alucard is is representative as much of mankind as it is particularly of lisa and the only love that he's ever ever had so Mm. it's a very um impactful moment yeah and then um his son shanks him (laughs) <laughs> but no, it's like he, he allows himself to be killed by um, Alucard um, with a wooden stake. Then Trevor comes in, saves the day and decapitates Dracula. <laughs> and then Cypher comes in and burns mm. the what remains to make sure he's truly dead, dead, dead. It's how I want to go. <laughs> My boy... I'm, I'm... I'm killing my boy. Lisa, I'm killing her boy. We painted this room. We made these toys. It's our boy, Lisa. Your greatest gift to me, and I'm killing him. I must already be dead. So, I mean, it's an emotional moment, and I think it's given that weight. Alucard justifies to himself that he died a long time ago, so Mm. that's the... You know, that's why he was capable of and, and patricide. Dracula himself says this too. Mm. When he when he notices that, you know, if I've done all this, then I must already be dead. Yeah. So the church killed him. Yeah. Yeah. It's sad. Very sad. Um, this, this happens to be, though, just the penultimate episode. Because quite like Game of Thrones, where some big crap happens on the penultimate episode and then there's a bit of a fallout and, and setting the scene for the second for the next season we we get sort of like a nice 30 minute ep- ending of an episode and, and again I, I quite enjoy this as well it's nice to see the the characters decompress survey the damage survey the damage um, i was just thinking it's alucard i really hope Alucard has a magic spell to help him clean up because I can't I dread to think how long this is going to take and I was trying to work out how long it would take me to clean up the castle all by myself do you think he's going to fantasia it up and get well, like I, walking brooms and mops I was I was really willing that to happen because I felt so bad <laughs> they leave the castle and Alucard is just going and he gets all these like wildlife creatures to come so. and do the dishes. Or maybe just the hell beasts. He like <laughs> he uses a forge master to just whistle while you were. <laughs> all these like zombie. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he decides to just look after the uh, 
Dracula's castle, but then I think Trevor gifts him the Belmont estate. And again, I was thinking, oh, great, two fucking places to (laughs) tidy up then. Well, it's okay. The castle can't be moved because Cypher broke it. Trevor gives him both the castle and the estate to look after and in a way protect it. He needs to protect its Mm. secrets and its its knowledge. And we see a ghostly Dracula walk past and walk up to him. And I'm really glad that Dracula didn't speak. I just think it would have kind of ruined their final dialogue. Yeah, I mean, Alucard is is clearly... Haunted a bit. Haunted by the ghosts of Dracula and and Lisa. And there's a bit in uh, where he sat, I think, in his old bedroom. And he sees a vision of his mother and himself as a young boy, which is slightly ruined by the presence of the Diddy laugh. Yes, this is a... Some stock laughter that we first saw in Diddy Kong Racing may not have been the first time it's ever been used, but it's like a generic, <laughs> and it's just if you when you hear it, I bet Rory can find a recording of it. Um, well, just search Diddy Laugh and you'll know. What oh, it is, is that what his, his genuine name? I think is? yeah. If you search for Diddy Laugh, you'll get wow. You'll get it. Well, it's it's just an everything. So yes, this emotional moment sadly was undercut by. Uh, the intro of Diddy Kong Racing. <laughs> but uh, the uh, Trevor and Cypher, they are going off together on basically adventures. And I quite like how they are just not... They're, they're friends, not lovers or anything you like think? that. I don't think... I think... I don't see it. I, I, I refuse to acknowledge that. I mean, I think the... You know, Alucard sort of points out to Trevor and Cypher Welver and... Well, to Cypher Welver in the library, like... You know, don't get too close to Trevor and all this stuff. I don't, not out of jealousy or anything. I think she's mm. trying to like protect Cypher in that respect, because Trevor's just bad news and Belmont's a bad news. I don't know. I think this is very much setting up love interest. I, I mean, it's. I think that's fine. I. I but I. I. I, would I very just much doubt that just... in season three they stay platonic. Oh, I just want her to love her, her love is her work i want her to love spells not blokes <laughs> but yes we are now left with um the only person we haven't mentioned is what isaac's up to and he's off to make a his own army of the dead and i, I am wondering if season three could top season two we know nothing we've, about it at the moment we've got we've got so the two forge masters hetra and isaac are still I was su- alive fully, so. i was very surprised they're gonna they're, they're both stuck around as you say, Isaac is thinking, maybe I should create my own army. Mm-hmm. Why not? Because I've got this do. power. Meanwhile, Hector has been enslaved by Carmilla. Mm. And Carmilla's basically, well, now the vampire world has a void and I intend to fill it. And I need you, Hector, and your forge mastering, forge mastering skills to create my army of the undead. So I think it's going to be a case of Isaac's army, Carmilla's army, and... Alucard, Trevor and Cypher caught up in hmm. the big old see, middle. See, that's what I'm a bit worried about. I feel that, I mean, I'm very happy Dracula was killed when he was. I think it reached its natural conclusion. i have been really annoying if just the series was Dracula's cast always just one step ahead yeah. of our heroes. Like, oh, bloody hell, London. <laughs> the London. So I've, I think it was a great arc, but... I'm hoping it's going to be something more interesting than a war of vampires and things. Because Carmilla, I quite enjoyed her sneakiness, but 
I don't, there's not much to her than that at the moment. So does she just want power? That's kind of dull. And what does Isaac want? Just to redo what Dracula was doing? But, you know, as I always say, I'm, I'm not the guy working on this and I'm sure I've got millions of ideas. I'm just a bit, I'm a bit worried that the, the, I thought Dracula was such a tragic uh, character and such a, an interesting tinder which lit the fuse on this whole story. And very much, particularly in the second season, feeling more like the main character than mm. than Trevor. I mean, it's it's very much the Dracula versus Alucard dynamic. Trevor and uh, Cypher are a little bit sideshows to the whole thing. I mean... Who knows? But we'll see. We may end up doing the third season, as I said earlier. But what were your thoughts on uh, Castlevania as a whole so far? I very much like Castlevania, Mm. the TV show, is what I would say. I think, as I said, season one was fine. I felt like, in a way, it tries a bit too hard. I think particularly when it comes to all the swearing and stuff. It's a bit of a shock when the first F-bomb is dropped in the first episode because it comes five minutes towards the end. I think, yeah, it's trying a bit too hard, bit too cool and edgy and dark and part of that is with the with the buckets of gore a lot of that is to do with the swearing i mean there is that barroom scene where you have the locals talking about this crazy guy fucking a goat and stuff and that's just like five minutes of wonky accents and Mm drunken banter which is like oh, isn't this funny it's just oh, I thought it was about fucking goats <laughs> um, it reminds me I've seen the Highlander anime we did one of those and a lot of Americans doing Scottish accents and you know Highlander is a, a film with wonky accents anyway so I guess that's appropriate yeah. season one was interesting but season two I felt was really good um, oh gosh, what's it? Well, no. Also, the fact that these episodes are about thirty minutes long tops is a big help as well, because there's nothing worse than having to binge watch hour long Netflix shows and it's scene setting. Yeah, I I very much appreciated the run times of these episodes because I it means you can think okay i'll watch another one rather than feeling like you've uh, mm. it's dragging on too much and these will often end on quite big cliffhangers as well so that was quite good i've heard i've read people call this the best video game adaptation ever i think i was reading i think it was either polygon or or, or, or paste or something or one of those they say it's absolutely the best one i think it definitely is helped by the fact it is a tv show as we established earlier because you can tell a story with a bit of weight. I think an issue a lot of video game movies face is that they are, by and large, action movies, and and therefore the calling cards of every film has to be the kick-ass action, which doesn't leave a lot of time for characterization and plot. I feel the, the extra time this got really allowed it to explore the characters. So um, I don't want to go ahead and say it's the best adaptation ever, but... I have to say, I've what I watched the first the first season a few times before the second season comes out, and I think I will return to this show multiple times, and I uh, look forward to the third season with a bated bloody breath. Um, so I'll give that a thumbs up as well. So what are we going to do next? Well, we're sticking around in animation. I know uh, th- again, a third one in a row. Yes, but uh, it's not a genre; it's a medium. It's a medium. It's a medium. We are going to do another sequel. 
it's uh, the sequel to a film that we covered earlier in the year, and we chose to cover that earlier in the year because of the impending release at the cinema of this new instalment of the Wreck-It Ralph saga. We are going to be covering Ralph Breaks the Internet. You can find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash gamesonfilmpod, Twitter, at gamesonfilmpod. You can email us, gamesonfilmpod at gmail.com. If you do go see Ralph Breaks the Internet, uh, do let us know if you have any thoughts or comments, and maybe we can discuss them on the next episode of the podcast. You can also find all episodes soundcloud.com slash gamesonfilmpod, and you can find us also individually on Twitter. Harry, you are... I'm at Only Man Who Can. And I'm at Rory Steele. Do you have anything to plug? I do a bit of stand-up comedy, so if you just search for Harry Steele comedy, you should find my stuff. And if you want to check out some video game club nights, then look out for Gamer Disco in London with events coming up uh, pretty much a few times every month. Mm. Apart from Christmas. We're not going to do anything around Christmas. I'm doing like a stand-up gig right after Christmas. Oh, really? It's going to be going to work on some great Christmas jokes. And the music for this episode was composed by David Lightfoot. Great. Well, that was uh, the coffin lid closed on Castlevania. We, day just, has dawned. Day is dawned. Morning has broken. And uh, we hope you have a good couple of weeks and we'll be back with our thoughts on Ralph Breaks the Internet. That, so please don't break the internet in the yeah, meantime don't break the internet before we put our podcast up <laughs> we don't have a reason to live otherwise um and on that note i've been harry i've been rory thanks for listening bye bye